everyone. It's really good to be back with you. Um, so over these two weeks, we're, we're thinking of the challenges facing uh, the church in the years that lie ahead. And last week, we took an external perspective uh, and thought about the problem from without. And this week, we're going to take an internal perspective and think about the problem from within. And last week, I used this strange diagram at slide one. Yes, there we go. Uh, to summarize some points we drew out of the Lord's letters uh, to the seven churches recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. And if you recall, we saw that the evil one uses two main tactics to attack the church. He plays bad cop and good cop. Um, so first he hits us with persecution, and then he seduces us with worldly values, which are absorbed into the church. And potentially, I was arguing, in any church, uh, although it will change over time, there are four groups the faithful, the unloving, the compromisers, and the sleepers. And it is the compromisers who incubate worldly values and ideas into church life. The most obvious example of this process relates to human sexuality. Many evangelical churches in Northern Ireland and in the US already have a small but vocal group uh, who seek to persuade their fellow members to affirm LGBT lifestyles. The Bible's orthodox sexual ethic must be replaced with one that's better aligned with the beliefs that now dominate wider culture. Another example I took last week uh, relates to the role of women in church life. Now, of course, Christians have argued for many years over these issues, but the reason I was interested in them is that in recent times, the fashionable concept of critical theory has started to drive the debate. Men who have authority in church are increasingly being portrayed as oppressive, Women are encouraged by wider culture to see male authority in church life as inherently abusive. Now, the interesting thing about both those examples is that the same attack lines are used. I suppose it's inevitable in a culture that idolizes autonomy that the main target in church is the idea of authority. The authority of Scripture and the authority derived from Scripture that's exercised by overseers and shepherds of the flock. So when we examine the challenges that we face from the inside, we see that they mainly boil down to this question of challenging authority. And in this talk, I want to spend most of my time discussing the challenge to biblical authority, and then we'll have a brief discussion about the challenge to the authority of elders. Now, we could have an enjoyable evening if I simply rehearsed the glorious truths uh, about the... Uh, about Holy Scripture. I could assert that we are called to live under the authority of the Scriptures, but that wouldn't equip you to face the challenges that lie ahead. But I am conscious there's a risk here because I could make some of you feel uncomfortable because I want to explain in detail how compromisers in the church go about undermining the authority of the church, of the, of the Bible. Let's uh, read briefly from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read the first four verses of 2 Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Digital communication has had a massive impact on how young Christians encounter false teaching. Before the days of the internet or smartphones, a typical Christian teenager had only a small number of authoritative voices in their head, their parents, their Bible teachers, and some school teachers. But now their lives have been opened up to this cacophony of different voices. Fashionable ideas, clever anti-Christian arguments can all be delivered in bite-sized chunks in TikTok videos, straight into the minds of our young people via social media. If we move on to slide two. So let me introduce you to some of the voices your young people will encounter in the digital space. Some of you will already be familiar with Rob Bell. He's uh, actually uh, no longer fashionable. But what about Rachel Held Evans or Dave Tomlinson? And sitting behind those popular figures, there are academics. Academics like Peter Enns or Richard Rohr. Peter Enns is a particularly important figure in this debate. I'm going to focus a lot on what he says. He's published two books, one called How the Bible Actually Works, and the other called The Bible Tells Me So. Now, I've put a quote from Richard Rohr up on the slide. It's probably too small for you to see, so let me read it. Uh, forgive me for this. He says, The number of violent, imperialistic, sexist, clannish, patriarchal, homophobic, fully contradictory, and historically entrapped texts in the Bible are just too many to be roundly dismissed. Nowadays, when anyone calls such a Bible inerrant, most modern and postmodern people just discount the honesty or thoughtfulness of the speaker. And I think that quote sums up quite a widespread feeling of unease about the Bible, even among young evangelicals. We'll move to slide three. To explain the fashionable approach to the Bible, I want to build up a diagram. Uh, so this slide is a, a timeline. You'll be very familiar with it. It starts with creation at the top, and then we have the big moments in the Old Testament. Okay? We have the Exodus, when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land. So that period of history is recorded in books like Genesis, uh, Exodus, and the other early books up to Ruth. Then we enter the period of the kings, starting with David and Solomon and going on for centuries. And that period is described in books like Samuel, uh, First and Second Kings, and the books of Chronicles. Then we come to the disaster known as the Exile. Uh, that's described uh, when God's people are taken into Babylon and Jerusalem, their capital city is destroyed. And so we're into books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel by that point. Then there's a 400 period of silence. We come into the New Testament, where the life of Jesus is described in the four Gospels. And then the theology of Christianity is explained in the other 27 books. And the final point at the very bottom of my timeline represents today, where we sit in 21st century Belfast. Okay, so that's the framework. We'll go on to slide four. Let's now overlay the fashionable approach to the Bible on top of our timeline. And you will see a five-stage process. We begin with what Peter Enns calls childish myths. So he takes the story recounted in the book of Joshua about the invasion of the land of Canaan by God's people. He says it never happened. Instead, he suggests, a group of illiterate tribesmen made up a story that, in their uncivilized minds, made God seem powerful and worthy of worship. 
In one of his books, he tells a story uh, of a time when he was a little boy in school. And he told an exaggerated story about his dad to impress his classmates. Now, he says Enns, I sincerely wanted to make my dad look good, but I was so childish that I made up stuff that wouldn't impress any adult. Now, many progressives love this idea because it means they don't have to defend the God of the Old Testament. I mean, all those criticisms of genocide can be swept away with a smile, says Enns, because they're just stories. The events described never actually happened. So that's the first step in his argument. Now, these scholars aren't just in the business of patronizing the authors of the Old Testament books. They, they make two points. First, they say, the biblical authors were storytellers, not historians. And they say that they used the past to make sense of the present. In other words, they wrote creative fiction. They were just making up stories to help people understand their present circumstances. I'll quote Peter Enns here. Writing about the past was never simply about understanding the past for its own sake, but about shaping, molding, and creating the past to speak into the present. Now, you're probably asking yourself, well, what was the point of writing creative fiction? Well, said the scholars, you need to understand that most of the Old Testament, most of those books, in essence, are political tracts. So the old myths of Cain and Abel and the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, these were written, made up to explain the tensions between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel after the time of Solomon. And that creation story in Genesis 1, well, that was written to annoy the Babylonians. We're told that the books we have in our Bible are really the result of a politically motivated scribe who took a big pair of scissors, some Judean sellotape, and lashed up a political tract from some earlier mythologies. Now, step four is the crucial one in their theory. This is the moment when we move to the New Testament. The critical step in Peter N's argument comes when he claims that both the Lord Jesus and Paul completely reinterpreted the Old Testament for their own ends. I'm going to shock you here, but Peter N says that as a professor of biblical studies, he would award the Lord Jesus an F grade for the way he interprets the Old Testament. And he says of Paul, Paul adapted and transformed an old tribal story of kings and land into a global story about grace and peace. Now we need to understand the scale of this claim. He's saying that both the Lord Jesus and Paul reimagined the Old Testament scriptures to make sense of their own lives. And so we're asked to accept the idea that the Old Testament is nothing more than a collection of old political tracts, fictions that use childish mythologies to help explain the present. But then the Lord Jesus and Paul come along and they take this old tribal story of kings and land and they completely reimagine it in a creative and fresh way that makes sense of the world in which they live. It's as if they mined the old text for some nuggets of wisdom that they could then employ in their own situation. Now, I suspect some of you are struggling to keep your blood pressure under control. But I ask for your powers of endurance, because everything we've talked about so far, everything in steps one to four leads up to this key conclusion in step five. Let me show you how this new theory of interpretation works. Ends and Rachel Held Evans and others argue this. Just as Jesus and Paul reimagined an old text and used it creatively to make sense of their lives, we should do exactly the same thing. N says, 
Let me set out where I am going with all this. Reimagining God for once here and now is what Christians and Jews have been doing ever since there have been Christians and Jews. We must obey the call to follow this biblical lead by reimagining God in our time and place. And suddenly, of course, the eyes of every progressive lights up. We can reimagine God for our own culture. That means we can square the Bible with our desire to affirm LGBT relationships, for example. Rachel Held Evans wrote a book called Searching for Sunday. And at one point in the book, she talks about a gay Christian network that she encountered. She said this network uh, offers community and support to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians, along with friends, family, and allies. The group, she said, was ecumenical, but it attracted a lot of evangelicals, many of whom had been marginalized or kicked out of the churches in which they grew up. Some of the more than 700 attendees, some of them believed scripture compelled them to commit their lives to celibacy, while others believed scripture granted them freedom to pursue same-sex marriage and relationships. There was room, she said, at the table for all. Now, I'm not actually concerned with the the sexuality question at this point. Nor am I saying that we shouldn't reach out in love to people in the LGBT community. Of course we should. My point is that Evans feels free to reimagine God and reimagine the Bible's message for their own cultural circumstance. They feel free to leave the bits of the Bible they regard as backward or inappropriate, lying like rubble in an ancient ruin. But they then take the bits they regard as progressive and enlightened and use them to build their own reimagined form of Christianity. Now, thank you for your patience in allowing me to explain those fashionable ideas. I'm now going to suggest two, uh, maybe three reasons why this new postmodern approach to biblical interpretation should be rejected. And the first is, it is based on shoddy scholarship. I have tried my best to be fair to our opponents tonight by engaging with the most academically rigorous writers in the group. But the truth is that their arguments are built on sand. Take the first of their big ideas. They claim that the Old Testament is an old tribal myth of kings and land that never rises above the politics of the Axial Age. Well, if you want to engage with a real scholar on the historical accuracy of the Old Testament, then read Kenneth Kitchen's book called The Reliability of the Old Testament. It engages with the best of contemporary scholarship of archaeology and Near Eastern studies, and it provides an amazing insight into the accuracy, the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. But there's an even more obvious repost which anyone can make. It's blindingly obvious that the Old Testament is concerned with life's deepest questions. It's about life's purpose and significance and value and meaning. It's about hope in the face of death. It uses compelling narrative to wrestle with the tension between justice and love. And it is from the ground up a narrative that is global. Think of God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations of the earth. Think of Isaiah's vision of a new heaven and a new earth, his vision of a time when swords will be beaten into plowshares. It is an insult to the intelligence of the biblical authors to reduce them to incompetent scribes with a political grudge against the Babylonians. Now, the second and most important idea here, the the, the, the fashionable idea, 
is that the New Testament is a creative reimagining of God and his plans for humanity. Allow me to use a technical term here, brothers and sisters, that claim is balderdash. <laughs> Perhaps the most stunning aspect of the Lord Jesus' person and work is that it fulfills at the deepest level the promises of the Old Testament. The New Testament fits into the Old Testament the way a plug fits into a socket. What ends calls a creative reimagining is in fact the unveiling of a deeper meaning that was always there. At the end of last year, I spent my Saturday afternoons with a young man who was suffering from doubt. He was even beginning to doubt the deity of Christ. And I said to him that if I had ever been tempted to doubt that truth, I would read the prophecy of Isaiah and ask myself this question. How is it that the entire gospel, at its deepest and most cosmic level, is recorded in a text written 800 years before Christ? Now, that brings me to this charge that I'm making of shoddy scholarship. To prove his point about the New Testament being a creative reimagining of the Old Testament, Enns takes as his prime example the Lord Jesus' use of the story of the burning bush to make a point in a debate he's having with the Sadducees. That's in Luke chapter 20. This is the bit where he awards the Son of God a grade F for biblical interpretation. Now, here's the thing. I consulted a number of well-regarded academic commentaries on Luke chapter 20, and every one of them, even the liberal authors, every one of them shows just how insightful and appropriate the Lord Jesus' interpretation of Exodus 3 is. Enns completely misses the point, the Lord's point. He makes a schoolboy error driven by prejudice and not by any sense of academic fairness. So that was my first counter. These fashionable ideas are based on shoddy scholarship. Now, to explain my second point, let me show you slide number five. A triumph of graphic design. <laughs> Peter Enns claims that his approach to interpretation makes the Bible bigger and fresher. Not just what he calls a rule book for evangelicals, another schoolboy sneer. But in fact, what he's doing is an act of vandalism. Imagine that one day you approach the, the Parthenon building in Athens. It's an architectural masterpiece that has inspired awe for millennia. And you knock it down, piece by piece. But then you move through the rubble, selecting the bits of stonework that appeal to you, and you use your selected stones to construct a small, brute ugly bungalow. You then invite me to admire your creative reimagining of the Parthenon. It's just so comfy and cosy, you say, and I've left lots of space for all my cultural prejudices. It's just right for the modern world. It even has solar panels and a satellite dish. Now, that is what I call creativity. Enns asks us to take the grandest story ever told, a story that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, and boil it down to a collection of old stories that we use to make sense of our own little lives. He reduces it to a small, localized thing that only inhabits this present cultural moment. Well, if you want that sort of thing, read Aesop's fables. Lots of little moralizing tales on the shelves of bookstores. But ends, your so-called creative and risk-taking approach to scripture is nothing more than an act of vandalism performed by a narcissist who can only view reality through the lens of his own gigantic ego. 
I feel so much better for having said that. <laughs> I want to finish this discussion about scriptural authority by explaining the view of the Bible that our churches must defend. We need to do this in detail. We can't just have a headline assertion. At their heart, as Jeff said in his introduction, these fashionable ideas about the Bible reject the concept of truth. All the authors I mentioned at the start spend a great deal of time mocking the idea of certainty. They never look for answers. They're just hipsters enjoying the conversation, asking the questions, exploring the mystery. And they regard anyone who claims to have an actual answer as a naive evangelical who uses the Bible as a rulebook. Now that sort of schoolboy sneer exposes postmodernism's hatred of truth. So let's take that sneer head on. Christianity, brothers and sisters, is not a philosophy. Christianity is truth revealed in history. But Christians don't just believe in a God who has acted in history. We say that he has spoken. He has communicated verbally to us. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So when Christians say God speaks, they mean that God has condescended to communicate with us using human languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now that verse teaches us that the individual words of the Bible are God's words. It's not as if God communicates principles to us using flawed human language. Nor can we say that God's words are contained in the Bible among ordinary human words, like nuggets of gold in a pile of rock. No, the assertion that we have to defend is that God's communication is verbal. It operates at the level of actual words and sentences. Let me finish by quoting a second verse about the Bible from 2 Peter. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word that's translated as carried along in that verse has the idea of a sailing ship being borne along by the wind to its destination. So Paul, Peter is saying that just as a sailing ship is borne along to its final destination, so the Spirit of God filled the mind and the soul and the, the, the hearts of the biblical authors with divine truth, mingling it with the author's own style, vocabulary, and experience, guiding the author to produce a perfect result. God's Holy Spirit combined natural human processes like creative writing and memory with divine supernatural processes to create the perfect written Word of God. And as a result, we have the inspired Word of God in our hands. It isn't a piece of creative fiction. It isn't a collection of political tracts. And we do not have the right to demolish the Bible and take a few bits of rubble to build a habitation for the soul in this cultural moment. That idea is built on shoddy scholarship. It's an act of vandalism performed by narcissists, and at its heart, it's a rejection of the concept of truth. So what I'm arguing here is that we need, to we need to defend what's called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And one consequence of that view is that we are called to defend the view that the Bible is free from error. Now, in progressive circles today, the doctrine of inerrancy is seen as a bit of 20th century rubble left by the fundamentalists who waged culture wars in the US in the 1970s. It's fashionable in progressive circles today 
to explain that this doctrine is a very modern invention of the 19th and 20th century. And it was claimed, it is claimed uh, by, by progressives that fundamentalists circled the wagons in an attempt to resist the flood of scientific thinking that flowed from Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. It's even trendier now to say that inerrancy was created by men to maintain their power, their oppressive power structures. So people who claim that the Bible is free from error are regarded a bit like members of the Flat Earth Society who use this doctrine as a political purity test. They mock fundamentalists for standing on the doctrine as a sort of brute fact, an artificial foundation that they just believe because of nowhere else to stand. Well, the fashionable compromisers may sip their AeroPress coffee with smug complacency, but actual historical facts demolish their arguments. Now, let me very quickly cite a few bits of evidence that prove that the Christian church from its earliest days has upheld the doctrine that scripture is free from error. We're going to start in the second century. The church father, Irenaeus, speaks of the Bible as the pillar and ground of our faith, which is above all falsehood. He said that the scriptures of truth were perfect since they are spoken by the rod of God and the spirit. Take another of the fathers, Clement of Alexandria. He spoke of the omnipotent authority of the scriptures. He said there was no discord between the books of the Bible because they all have the same author. Then listen to Augustine something I rarely do. I have, learned to, shouldn't say that. I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of the scripture, he says. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. In the high middle ages, Thomas Aquinas stated that God is the author of holy scripture. He wrote, it is heretical to say that any falsehood whatsoever is contained either in the gospels or in any canonical scripture. Come forward to the Reformation area. Luther made blistering attacks against those who claimed that there were errors in the Bible. Calvin anchored his belief in the utter truthfulness of Scripture in the character of God. He said, it's not sufficient to believe that God is true and cannot lie or deceive unless you feel firmly persuaded that every word which proceeds from him is sacred and viable truth. So this fiction that the doctrine of inerrancy is a recent invention should be shot down in flames, in love of course. It's nothing but a fashionable meme circulating on social media. Now just before we move to the Q&A session, uh, we'll move to slide six, our final slide. I just wanna make a couple of observations about future attacks on the authority of elders. Scripture consistently warns elders to be gentle and humble, not to lord it over church members. They must never be strikers to use the language of the authorized version. They are only under shepherds who are accountable to the chief shepherd who is Christ. However, on occasion, elders must make decisions to impose discipline on church members who have sinned grievously. For all my life, that aspect of an elder's role was uncontroversial, but in recent years, it has become a battleground. Take a typical conflict in church as an example. I was certainly raised to follow what's called the Matthew 18 model. So let me just read you a few verses from Matthew 18. Turn with them uh, if you want. Matthew 18, and we'll just read 15 and 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
So those verses set out a three-stage process for the resolution of a conflict. In step one, private reconciliation is attempted. If that fails, second stage kicks in. Evidence is gathered, witnesses are enlisted. But if that doesn't work, then the elders of the church must form a judgment on who is right and who is in the wrong. Now, set that process beside the way victims talk in our world today. If someone is offended, then that subjective emotion must trump every other factor in the relationship. A victim's lived experience cannot be probed or examined. It must be believed and accepted without question. The technical phrase for this new approach is untethered empathy. We must show complete empathy for a victim and not even attempt to tether it to facts or the testimony of others. Now, the problem is that this so-called untethered empathy towards a victim undermines the investigative approach laid down in Matthew 18. Don't investigate, just believe. Because nothing in our world can trump a victim's lived experience. It's my truth, and so it cannot be challenged. Anyone who queries my truth is being oppressive. Now, this privileging of subjective feelings over facts makes an elder's job impossible. The moral framework of church discipline gets replaced by the amoral process called cancelling. So order in a local church cannot be maintained. You may want to pick this up in the Q&A, but I have personally come to the conclusion that new policies on church membership are going to become essential. Members are going to have to agree that they are willing to accept the authority of the elders to impose church discipline, if needed. Anyway, I have talked for long enough. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.